Thanks, Jeff. Good morning. We are continuing our sermon series, walking through the book of Exodus, week by week. And last week, Todd uh, brought us up to speed on the situation that Israel had found itself in in years of slavery in Egypt, and he showed us the power of prayer and, and reminded us that we have a God who's not distant, but who sees us and, and who knows us and, and sees the suffering of his people. Um, and so this week, we, we, we kind of come to a turning point in this story. Uh, for the first two chapters of Exodus, uh, God had not even been named until the very end of chapter 2. And his presence had been felt and his hand had been at work through the different parts, but he was mostly silent and, and in the background. That all changes here. And it changed last week too, but it really changes here in chapter 3. In chapter 3, we have what's called a, a theophany. And that's a theological term for any time that someone has a personal encounter with God in the Old Testament. And in this encounter between God and Moses, we're going to see the holiness of God on display. And we're going to see how Moses responds to that holiness. So uh, when is the last time, think with me, that you were in awe of something? When something knocked you off your feet because it was so beautiful, so enormous or awe-inspiring? Could have been someone that you were in the presence of. It could have been um, something you saw uh, in nature. A celebrity, maybe, you met? A celebrity encounter, any of you? Um, in 2015, Andre and I went to Europe. Uh, I've talked about this trip before from the space we called it our end-of-life trip because we knew we were going to move, buy a house, start a business, have kids. I was going to start pastoring at a church. And so it was the summer before we did that. We went to, to Europe. Um, we did all those things that I just mentioned in three months when we moved here. That was fun. Um, so we went to Europe. We went to Paris, Amsterdam, and Nice, and uh, it was a privilege to be able to go. It was wonderful. We had a blast. Paris was beautiful and big. Amsterdam was uh, shocking how wonderful it was and, and, and historic and beautiful. But Nice was something else. Nice was on the south of France. And there's this cool thing about Europe uh, where you can take a train anywhere. Uh, And so we could go up and down the south of France, the coast, to Monaco, wherever, by just like a short train ride. It was amazing. So we would go to all these different beaches. And our Airbnb host told us about this one beach that was breathtaking and beautiful called Plage Mala, a couple stops away from where we were in Nice. And so we get on the train. I'll never forget getting off the train. We're in this little Parisian suburb, right? All these small houses. Uh, It wasn't super nice. Like, it felt a little bit like it was in the country. So we were like, okay, what's going on here? And then to get down to where the beach was, we were walking down these, like, I swear it was like 90-degree angles. Like, through these suburbs, we thought we were going to fall and break our legs as we were walking. They weren't even pathways. Like, we were walking through residential drives, essentially, But I'll never forget turning the corner and seeing this beach in front of me. Gorgeous cliffs on both sides. It was in a cove. There's all like these beautiful tiny cabanas, not super, uh, like there weren't a ton of people there. It felt very secluded in this cove with these massive cliffs. And I never forget feeling this sense of like awe. And I stopped in my tracks. And I just took it in. That's often our first response when we see something awe-inspiring, right? Is to to kind of stop in our tracks. 
And there's something very human about that and taking it in. But think about those moments in your life. After that initial kind of feeling, what do you do next? You always take action. You do something, right? And we could not scramble down to that beach fast enough. Honestly, if it wasn't so steep, we probably like would have run, right? Uh, We didn't do that. We went down there, and man, we had this beautiful, like, six hours of doing nothing on the beach. Actually, it was, like I said, it was before we moved here. I was actually going to come interview here, uh, I think, two weeks after. I wrote the sermon that I preached when I interviewed here on that beach. It was awesome. Anyway, that was just a little side note. I want us to think this morning, as we walk through this passage, um, about the holiness of God. This morning, that's what we're going to talk about. I I think my worry for us is that we take that for granted sometimes. And I think we know this. um, I I do hope that we, by the end of this morning, we have a healthy amount of respect, reverence, awe, and and an acknowledgement of the holiness of God, that we recover some of that. But maybe more than that, I want us to think through how we respond to that holiness. Um, this is exactly what we see from Moses in the story. He comes in contact with the God of the universe, Yahweh himself, and he's blown away by him. And he responds to it, though. And we're going to see he doesn't do it perfectly, and we're going to see that he does do it well in some ways. But no matter what, the holiness of God demands a response from us. And there's a phrase that's thrown around often, it's uh, nothing is sacred anymore. We say that sometimes. And it's the idea that we don't hold anything in reverence, that uh, our cynicism, our access to the world through technology and the internet and globalism, nothing's awe-inspiring to us anymore. If I want to look at the Grand Canyon, I can look it up on the internet. If I want to know what uh, someone that I look up to is doing, a celebrity or a theologian, if I want to know what they ate for breakfast, I could probably figure it out, Right? There's this idea that nothing is sacred anymore because it's in our grasp. The cynicism piece is interesting with that because because we have access to everything, we're rarely wowed and then we become cynical. Nothing is as good as we hope it is. But I realized something this week. That phrase isn't true. Actually, because of all of those things, we revere and find things sacred maybe more than ever now. We hold political leaders up in reverence. They can do no wrong. We'll explain away anything that they do. We hold up our political parties, and whatever they say, we fall in line because what we hold to what they do and say is sacred. We treat athletes and celebrities and what they do and say is gospel, and we follow their every move. Many of you hold the Dean Smith Center as if it's holy ground, right? I do the same thing with Death Valley and Clemson, right? We hold our desires, our autonomy, our individualism, our hobbies, families, and passions as something that is uniquely our own. We hold them tight to the vest and not something that's a God-given gift. We hold even our narcissism as sacred and holy. As humans in our 21st century context, we're holding things sacred And it maybe doesn't look the same as it used to, but it's true of us. We revere so many things. People, places, things, all the nouns as holy, right? But the problem is that they aren't God. They aren't the king of the universe. They aren't the creator of all things. They aren't all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. They're actually created 
and they're created to be in submission to God. They are holy only in and as much as they were created by the Holy One Himself. So all those things that we mentioned, politics, sports, individualism, even personalism, they can all be holy because God created all things, but we fail when we give them the reverence and the fidelity and the honor that's only due to him. And when we do this, we do as Paul says, we worship what was created rather than the creator. So, Our responses to those things is actually a response reserved only for God. So this morning, my hope is that we think about the ways in which we respond to the holiness of God and it might rightly reorder how we respond to everything else. And this morning, we're going to look at two responses that the holiness of God demands from us. First, that first response is humility. And the second response is action. So humility and action are proper responses to the holiness of God. So humility. One of the things that's so great about walking through a book like Exodus and the familiar stories like this of the burning bush is that we can zoom in on a very granular level and focus on things that maybe we would have missed before or that we never really knew. And this week I I saw a bunch of different things that I never noticed before, especially thematically in these passages. In just these first seven verses, we see four different displays of God's holiness. And we see Moses' response to each one with humility. These displays are God's presence, God's power, God's place, and God's promise. And we're going to walk through them as we walk through these first seven verses. So uh, verses 1 and 2 say this. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. So the presence of God was here. Uh, Often in the ancient Near East, when a king, a landowner, or anyone that wanted to send a message wanted to do that, often they sent someone to relay the message, right? They were like a messenger. And what the messenger's word was, was supposed to be exactly what the messenger said. Or sorry, what the person who sent the messenger said. They were kind of in lockstep together. He was supposed to be Um, that person's amalgam, wherever they went. And the angel of the Lord here shows up a few times in the Old Testament. His uh, identity is largely unknown. He could just be an angel that God used and sent to to say a message. Some commentators think it's Jesus himself, and this is an Old Testament um, uh, appearance of Jesus. And Jesus in John is known as the Word incarnate, so part of his mission uh, is to be God's messenger to the world, so that makes sense. We don't really know here, and regardless of who he was, this angel of the Lord shows us that this was a holy event. The God of the universe, his very presence was there, and he was speaking. How would Moses respond? And when we see God calling out to people throughout Scripture, the correct response, especially in the Old Testament, is always humbly here I am, which is how Moses responds. The second display of God's holiness is in the bush itself, and this shows the power of God. So his presence was there through the the messenger. Also, his power was on display. Verse two says, he looked and behold, the bush was burning, but it was not consumed. Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. So it's interesting. I've, you know, we've always thought about the burning bush. I've thought about it a lot. But I've never really considered how um, 
much of a big deal it was that the bush itself was not burning. Think about this. The flame was self-perpetuating, right? Flames always need something to feed on for flames to grow or to stay alive. They need wood. They need oxygen. They need other things that I'm not smart enough to know that they need. But I know those two things. But this bush, and God could have caused flame to come down and burn a bush, right? He's powerful enough to do that. But what's interesting is he chose not to. He chose the flame to be self-perpetuating. That's because the power of God doesn't need a source to feed on. It only, God's power only needs itself. God is so holy, so mighty, so majestic that he alone is the source of his power. So Moses sees something so foreign. He does the right thing, though. And I don't know if it's the one I would do. He doesn't run away, which is probably what I would do. He calmly goes and investigates. He checks it out. He knows something different is happening. Here we see the holiness of God through his power is something that attracts us, not repels us, especially if our heart's in the right place. All right, so presence, power. The third display was in the place. This is called called Mount Oreb here. The mountain is also called Sinai. It's the same place that God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, which is the sign they allude to in those verses. There's a consecration of holy ground here where one day God will give Moses all the tools he needs to follow him. Verse five says, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place you're standing on is holy ground. So the word of God was spoken through this messenger's powers on display. And then because of those things, the ground itself became holy. Removing your uh, shoes was a sign of reverence in the ancient Near East. It's a practice that even continues to this day. So this was no ordinary message, no ordinary fire, no ordinary ground. This was the holy God come down to speak to his servant. And what does Moses do? He takes his shoes off. You do what uh, the person says in that moment, right? And then the final display of God's holiness is in his promise. Verse 7 says this, or 6 and 7, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Excuse me. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. God reminded Moses that the promises, the covenant that he made with Abraham lasted through Isaac and Jacob was still applicable. We have a God who does not go back on his promises. He told Abraham that he would make him a great nation, that he would give him a son, that his name would be great, that he would be set apart, blessed to be a blessing. That God was here. And that promise that was to Abraham and his descendants was being reaffirmed here to Moses. And Moses, how does he respond? He hides his face, not out of um, false fear, but out of godly righteousness and fear before the Holy One himself. So here we have a holy presence, a power, a place, a promise, all these displays of God's holiness, and one response, humility. The word holy in Hebrew um, literally means set apart or distinctive. God is other. He's different than us. God is a spirit, yes, but he's also a person. But he's not human. He's something else, distinct, set apart, completely without sin, full of righteousness, justice, and truth, all-powerful, all-knowing. He's without beginning. He's without end. He's the creator of all things, and all things were made by him. And without him, nothing would be made. He knows the hairs on our heads. 
He's determined our steps. We are completely helpless without him. And yet, he made us in our image so that through his grace, we have agency in our lives. Because of this, this distinct nature of God, we can never lose sight of his holiness. I do think sometimes we toe the line too closely to irreverence. I think we focus too quickly on, on going to Jesus and the Holy Spirit which resides in us, connecting us to Jesus as our high priest and mediator. And we forget that God, the Father, is so holy that no one was even allowed to enter his presence in the Old Testament except for one person, the high priest, one time a year. That is the same God, he's unchanging, that we serve today. You know, in, that, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, if anyone went back there that wasn't the high priest on that one day, if anyone went back there, they would be struck dead immediately because his holiness was too much for sinful man to be in presence of. So to be irreverent to the power and majesty of God our Father is the height of arrogance. But we also know at the same time that the holiness of God is not a wall between us and him because he is like us as well and he did send Jesus to break down that veil between us and God. We are made in his image and it's here that focusing on the holiness of God, the perfection of God, the otherness of God is important because it reminds us how truly amazing it is that he wants to be in relationship with us. The all-powerful holy God wants to be in relationship with you. The God whose power is so mighty that it can manifest on a bush and self-perpetuate just through his power whose presence makes even the ground holy. The God whose promises are so binding that they last for centuries wants to be in relationship with you and with me. This is humbling for us because we know we don't deserve that. We know it's humbling for us because we don't even want it often, do we? And yet, he pursues us, never ending, forever. He's so set on pursuing us that he allowed Jesus, his only son, to die in our place. The holy God didn't count our sins and transgressions against us, but poured them out on his own son instead. This is why humility is a way of life for us as Christians. It's not something that we should aspire to. It, it's, it should be a part of our DNA. Because we know more than anyone that we're unworthy of that relationship. Humility, I fear, is no longer a, a character trait that's celebrated in 2020. To be humble, truly humble, is to count others better than yourself. True humility holds strong to what one believes, yes, but always leaves space for others' beliefs. Godly humility means loving those who are unlovable because Christ loved us when we were unlovable. Godly humility means we lay down our lives, our needs, our different ideologies and beliefs for the sake of our brothers and sisters. Humility, godly humility in light of who God is and what he's done for us is the church's biggest apologetic for this election year, for next year, and for years to come. We must show a different way because we've experienced a different kind of love. 
One of the greatest indicators of whether or not someone recognizes and embraces the holiness of God in their lives is whether or not they have a humble spirit. Because when we have an encounter with the creator God, humility is the response. It's the first one. It has to be. Because we don't encounter anyone else like him. And that brings us to my second point. So the holiness of God demands a response from us. And we've seen the first one is humility, and the second one is now action. Verse 7 and 8 say this, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of land to, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So humility is a response, it's the correct one, but the holiness of God calls us to action as well, because part of God's character is action, as we just read in those verses. God's not inactive, he's not unconcerned with what's going on in the world, he's actually working constantly for the sake of his glory and for the flourishing of the world. So earlier we talked about how holiness means separate and apart, but that separation and that distinction doesn't mean inaction. He doesn't sit idly by while his people are suffering. And this is a lot of what Todd talked about last week. Verse 8 says, He came down to deliver them out of Egypt and to bring them to a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. God didn't have to come down. He didn't have to intervene in the events of history. He didn't have to come save a broken and sinful people. He didn't have to end their suffering. But he did. He came down. And not only did he intervene, he didn't just promise to rescue them and then leave them. He promised to bring them to something. The salvation of God is not just from something. It's always to something. And God's pattern of redemption and restoration is not done to us, but it's done in partnership with us. So verse 9 shows us this. It says, Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So the entirety of this passage hinges on verse 10. Up until this point, it had been all about God. God, who had been mostly in the background for two chapters, has this beautiful display of holiness. And we see it in these ten verses. His holiness, his grandeur, his might, his plan. He wants to intervene in history. But at verse 10, it changes. It's a radical break from all that had just been spoken. And it was probably so stunning for Moses to hear. And you know, as the the Israelites, as they learn these verses as children and they memorize them, I bet it was stunning for them every time they memorized it and repeated it. Because the holy, all-powerful God wanted to bring about his purposes, but he wanted to use his people to do it. In one word, come. The grand intention of God, his plan of salvation, was placed in the hands of humans. It became a human responsibility, obligation, vocation. Moses is now the vehicle through which God's purposes are achieved. This is the great picture of the connection between God and man, creation and creator, heaven and earth, holy and sinful, broken and beautiful. It's found in the statement, I will send you. 
It's a human enterprise, not only a heavenly one. It is Moses who will meet Pharaoh, Moses who will bring out God's people, Moses who acts in God's place. Here, more than anywhere, we see this odd joining of God's will and our responsibility, his holiness and our response. So how will Moses respond? He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out? And God said, I will be with you. I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Come back to this place when you've gotten them out. And I'll bless you. His response was humble, if not self-deprecating, but it serves as a good reminder to us. We're called by God to serve his purposes, to partner with him in the restoration of all things. And he promises to be with us. That it will be his power that goes before us, not our own. That he will give us everything we need to serve him. He will be with us. This is what this means for us. The holiness of God, his knowledge, his power, his character, his faithfulness always calls us to partnership with him. It calls us to action. And so often we think the opposite, right? Often we think the holiness of God is so big that all we can see in light of it is our unworthiness. Who are we to partner with God? We see our sin only. We see our shortcomings. And we know that Moses felt the same, right? We're going to see that in the weeks to come. He felt like he was unfit to be that vehicle of salvation and restoration. And this makes sense. Where God is holy, Moses is sinful. Where God is sovereign, Moses is doubtful. Where God is able, Moses is unable. Where we are sinful, God is holy. Where we are doubtful, God is sovereign. Where, God, where we are unable, God is able, right? We feel those same things. And yet God in his graciousness still chose to use Moses. And he still chooses to use you. God's holiness doesn't repel, it, it attracts. And not only does it attract, it sends out. Right? That's the beautiful nature of our relationship with God. He brings us near. He doesn't keep us away. But when he brings us near, he sends us back out. And we are too. And there's a lot broken right now, right? It seems like there's a lot broken right now. 200,000 deaths from a virus. Our black brothers and sisters feeling centuries-old effects of slavery, racism, oppression. An election year that continues to grow more and more vitriolic. Discourse, discussion, and ability to relate with people who think different than us seems lost. And then there's the church and our vocation to partner with God to bring about his kingdom. His plan, his salvation, his restoration. So how do you do that in 2020? I think perhaps the most important way is to commit to displaying the holiness of God in every facet of our lives. Actively. We fight for justice racially, for the unborn, for the poor and needy, because God is a God of justice. We fight for unity with our fellow Christians and our image bearers, not for unity's sake. No, 
because unity without calling sin and injustice sin and injustice, but true biblical unity so that the flourishing of God's kingdom can be accomplished. We fight for one another to think differently, to be able to do that, but yet stay in community with one another because diversity of thought is essential to God's people and the world flourishing. Don't you see, we have to partner with God as he brings about his kingdom here on earth, even in this year that makes it seem like we can't. God has chosen you to bring about his purposes today. How will you respond? How will we respond as Hope Chapel? Will we do it with grace and humility and love and a commitment to truth and to scripture and to the gospel This isn't easy. It calls us to something. And yet, part of being a Christian, part of coming before the holy God is that he does expect a response from us. And what's it gonna be? To this day, I still think about um, Plaj Mala. It's like my happy place, right? When you're sad. Um, Here's what I know. If I lived in that suburban little Parisian town, I think the majesty of that beach would have gotten familiar to me quick. I think I would have gotten used to it. There's something uniquely human about majestic and beautiful things becoming commonplace to us. My encouragement for you this morning is that we must not and cannot allow the God of the universe, his holiness, his majesty, his power to become commonplace. Because it's not. It's beautiful. It's almost too big to fathom. And yet it's true. He wants to be in relationship with you. That is a humbling thing. But man, it is one that we can stake our lives on. It's worth living for. Where's your heart this morning? Where's mine? Where do we need the grace of Jesus Christ to come in to change it? to soften us, and then to send us out on mission for his kingdom. Father, thank you for um, your work, for your holiness, for your goodness to us, your love for us, and your grace for us. Let that both humble us, but also call us to action for the sake of your kingdom and the flourishing of the world. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.